Well, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to Psalm 100. Like Matt said, my name is Jake. I'm the teaching pastor at Candeo. And this is kind of, this is an odd thing for me, honestly, because I remember when Anthem started and to be able to be, this is the first time I've been in this building and sort of look around and see the, like, uh, Joel and Rachel Wise, you know, I mean, they came from Candeo and uh, Joel kept us safe like the whole time. You know, if you know Joel, that's kind of his thing. And then Rachel serving so faithfully with Candeo kids and, and the Van Voorst and their like small army running around, you know, where it's like, I mean, top five influences in our lives as it comes to parenting, because uh, they have a lot of experience in that, uh, are Todd and Paige, you know, and so it's just been really fun uh, to be here. And so thank you so much for having me. Uh, like Matt said, we're up in Cedar Falls, Iowa. And if you've never been to Iowa, uh, one thing that you'll know that you'll notice if you go is that Iowa is very flat and about 90% of Iowa is what we would call the middle of nowhere. Have you ever been to the middle of nowhere, right? It's like where you're driving and your kids are like, where are we? And you don't know how to answer because you're in the middle of nowhere. Like that's 90% of Iowa. And so uh, we're up in Cedar Falls and uh, I found this out recently and it makes a lot of sense if you think about it that Iowa is actually the second largest producer of wind energy in the country, second only to Texas, right? Which makes a lot of sense because the greatest natural habitat for a windmill is in fact in the middle of nowhere in the middle of nowhere where it's like totally flat, there's no hills, and it's just constantly windy. And so I remember a couple years ago, I was driving from Cedar Falls to Des Moines. It's about a two-hour drive. Des Moines right in the middle. Cedar Falls is, is northeast here. And I'm driving, and most of that drive consists of the middle of nowhere. And so there are just miles and miles and miles of these, of these wind farms. And so you have windmills as far as the eye can see. And on this particular day, it was incredibly windy. It was the kind of wind that you have to, like, it's a, it's a two hands on the steering wheel kind of wind. You know what I'm talking about? Where like your car is just constantly being pushed. Like you don't want to go by semis because you don't know what that kind of sailboat thing is going to do. You know, it's the kind where like you're, I'm looking out and I was known for our, our corn, you know, so we just, you just see the corn stalks like bending. It's the kind of wind, honestly, if you're like, if your primary form of exercise is flying kites, like this was your day. You know, like you were getting jacked flying kites on this day, right? And so it is so incredibly windy. I'm like two hands on the wheel. I'm, I'm trying to keep my car in the, in the lanes. And I look in these miles of wind farms and I see no windmills spinning. Not one. And I literally, I'm, I'm by myself in the car and I say out loud, what a waste because Now, I'm not an engineer, okay? But, and so I don't know much about windmills, but I know a couple things. One, I know that they're big. I know that they have a blinking light on the top. And I know that the only thing they're designed to do is spin when it's windy. Like I said, I'm not that smart. But I can at least get that, right? And here are these miles and miles and miles of windmills almost in stubborn opposition to the one thing they were designed to spin for, to the one thing they were designed to do. You see, the problem wasn't that the wind wasn't blowing. The problem wasn't that the wind wasn't moving. The problem was that none of them were responding to the only thing they were designed to spin for. You see, you and I aren't so different than these windmills, are we? 
See, the reality is, is that you and I were designed to worship. We were designed to have our, our hearts spin for the glory and the greatness of God. But yet what we do so often is instead of spinning for the glory of God, we often become infatuated and obsessed with everything else but who God is and what he has done. And like these windmills, we, will, we often stand in stubborn opposition to the very thing that we were created to spin for. You see, you, you might come in this morning and you say, well, well, you, you say we were created for worship. I don't worship. And I go, I respectfully disagree. Because worship isn't singing. Worship isn't coming into this place. Worship is ascribing ultimate value and worth to someone or something. That's worship. And the reality is this morning is that each and every one of you are worshipers because you, at the end of the day, ascribe ultimate value and worth to someone or something. So it's not a matter of whether or not you're a worshiper. The question is, what do you worship? Who do you worship? Now, my task this morning, as we jump into Psalm 100, my task this morning isn't, isn't to uh, force you to do anything, okay? Like Matt said, as you're walking through the Psalms, it, we are talking about being before doing. And so my goal isn't to force you or to guilt you into doing anything this morning. What my goal is, is to take the diamond of Psalm 100 and simply hold it up for all of us to see. And as, and as the light of the glory of Christ shines through this diamond and it reflects on our hearts that, that our natural response to seeing God for who he is and what he has done, that we can't help but worship God, that we can't help but spin for God in Psalm 100-like worship. So Psalm 100, we're just going to literally just walk through and kind of like on a safari, I'm just going to stop and point out things along the way. So Psalm 100. Verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Stop right there. Make a joyful noise. Here, literally, like the word for make a joyful noise literally means to shout or to cheer. It's, it's, it's like when a king comes, in, comes back from battle into his kingdom. It's what his people would do as, as this good king is entering his city. They would shout. They would cheer. And what the psalmist is telling us here is that when God, the good king, appears, that praise cannot help but come from the lips of his people. Because the reality is, is that we lift our voices for what we value. You lift your voice for what you value. I don't care if you're introverted. I don't care if you're an engineer. I don't care what your disposition is. The reality is, is that at some point, you will lift your voice for what you value. Uh, last last Tuesday, I was on the stationary bike at the gym, and I, I usually bring my Kindle to read, but I put my noise-canceling headphones in to just kind of block everything out while I'm working out. And I hear over my noise-canceling headphones a woman yelling, cursing, hitting, like, the equipment, you know? And I'm like, is there a brawl going on here at the gym? Like, what is happening? You know, she, over my headphones, I can hear this woman making all this noise. And I look to my right, and two bikes down, there is this woman all by herself watching college baseball. <laughs> Vanderbilt versus North Carolina. And I don't know who she was cheering for, and I don't know who was winning. But here's what I do know. I know that her value of college baseball 
was greater than her value of my opinion of her while she watched college baseball. Absolutely. I was like, I cannot believe this. Like, this is Sermon Illustration 101. I could pull out my phone and start typing it out. Like, we lift our voices for what we value. You may say I'm not an expressive person. Oh, yeah, you are. You're expressive toward what you value. See, when, when I'm driving, when a cat darts out in front of my car, I say nothing. In fact, I might speed up. I'm not really a cat person, right? I say nothing. But when my son is running in my yard toward the street, you better believe I don't mumble my instructions to him. I don't kind of just like stick my hands in my pocket like, oh, Judah, come back to the house. No, I lift my voice and I shout to him because I value my son in such a way that I will lift my voice. See, no one has ever come home from a sporting event and said, man, could you believe how loud that mumbling was? No one has ever done that. And what the psalmist is showing us here at the very beginning of Psalm 100 is that we're to make a joyful noise. But it's not just make a joyful noise. He tells us where that noise is to be directed. You see that in verse 1? Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Bob Coughlin, one of, one of my favorite uh, worship leaders, you could say, he once said this. He said, we don't worship God based on our disposition. We worship God based on his worthiness. We don't worship God based on our disposition. You don't, you don't expressively worship God just because you're extroverted or just because you, you happen to not care about what people are thinking around you. You worship God based on his worthiness. And if there's no sense where you praise the Lord in a way that can be recognized by anyone else, it's quite possible that your knowledge of God is nothing more than an intellectual exercise. If your worship of the Lord can't actually be recognized by anyone around you, then it's very possible that what you know about the Lord has purely stayed in your head, like has purely been an intellectual exercise. Listen very carefully. Don't disconnect your thoughts about God from your emotions toward God. Don't disconnect those things. Your thoughts about God and your emotions toward God. Because if, if what you claim to believe about God does not in some way elicit any response on, on like a, an emotional level, in the same way that my son running toward the street elicits a response, like I know if he gets hit by a car, he will get injured severely. I know that, and that knowledge creates an emotional response towards my son. And if what you know about God doesn't in some way, I'm not talking about emotionalism here. I'm just talking about in some stirring of the affections of your heart, then it's quite possible that you might not actually believe the things that you think you believe, or at least the things that you say you believe. It's the very thing that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 15 when he's addressing the Pharisees. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. You see that? They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, it is absolutely true 
that we must believe right things about God. Absolutely. How can you worship the one that you don't know? We must believe right things about God. Doctrine absolutely matters, but true understanding of doctrine will always touch the mind and the heart at the exact same time. There should be no such thing in our midst as a stoic theologian. Because if you have seen the greatness of God in Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself in the scriptures, as you grow in the depth of your knowledge of the Lord, you'll begin to grow in your awareness of the greatness of his grace that he has expressed towards you in Jesus Christ, which will mean that you cannot help but respond in exuberant praise. Shout triumphantly to the Lord. And check this out. All the earth, all the earth, like this kind of praise is an evangelistic. It's, a, it's an invitational kind of praise. It's an inclusive kind of praise where the glory of God is meant to go to the nations through the praise coming from the lips of his people. See, this is why global missions exist. I love this wall that we have over here as we look at what God is doing across our nation and around the world and how you have your summer teams and their pictures and be praying for them. Like, this is why global missions exist. Global missions exist because global worship of God doesn't. You see, for the longest time, and, and this, this is really sad as a pastor. I've been a pastor for over a decade for the longest time, I actually, if I was really honest, didn't care a whole lot about global missions. And it wasn't that I didn't care and that like, I was actively against it or I'm like, no, we shouldn't send summer teams or we shouldn't send resources, all that stuff. It wasn't that at all. It was simply the, the reality that, that I was much more aware of and consumed by and cared much more about what God was doing in front of me and not really all that concerned about what God was doing around the world. And the reason why that shouldn't be true of me, or that shouldn't be true of us, is because God is worthy to be worshipped in every nook and cranny of his creation. That the worthiness of God, he is worthy to be worshipped from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every person that he has created, but that every day the reality is that 150,000 people worldwide every day will go off into an eternity, many of them having never heard the name of Christ. 150,000. That's like the city of Columbia being wiped out every day. That's two people every second. Billions of people around the world that our great God created to worship him. It's why we make disciples. It's why we go to the nations. It's why we band together in this thing called the Salt Network to plant churches both nationally and internationally. It, it isn't because it's easy. Planting churches really isn't easy. You know that if you've been here for any length of time. Being a church plant is not easy. Planting churches isn't sexy either. Like it might sound like it is. It's not. Like, it's, it's nitty, and it's gritty, and it's hard work. Like, we plant churches not because it's easy and not because it's sexy, but because God is worthy of praise and adoration from every person on this planet. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. What does it mean to serve the Lord? Right, that we can we can hear like 
like doing the Lord's work, serve the Lord. And that can feel really ambiguous, right? Because we're like, I don't exactly, it doesn't seem like God needs anything. Like, have you had that person in your life that you, you never know what to get them for Christmas? Because <laughs> it seems like they have everything. And you, you just kind of go on Amazon, like maybe Prime Day, you're like, well, that's a good deal. Maybe they could use that. Like some sort of knick-knacky, like kitchen appliance or something. I don't know. Like, what do you, what do you get for the person who has everything? What do you do for the person who needs nothing? Like, if anyone in the universe isn't in need of anything, it would be God himself. So how in the world do we... Do we serve God? See, verse 2, th- this is something to know about, about poetry, which is uh, the genre that most of the Psalms are. In Hebrew poetry, what often happens is something called parallelism. And so what you have is you have the first line of your verse, let's say verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. And in Hebrew parallelism, what will happen is the second line explains the first and so when we ask the question, how in the world do I serve a God who has everything and needs nothing? The psalmist is saying, look, look to line two. Serve the Lord with gladness by coming into his presence with singing. This is how we serve the Lord. Like, like we, we sometimes call this a worship service. And there is a very real sense where when we come to a worship service, the reality is is that God is the one serving us much more than we're the one serving him. Like God is the servant in in this situation as he ministers to us by the Holy Spirit. He is serving us. And how do we serve the Lord in our worship services? We come into his presence with singing. You see, worship, worship is certainly more than singing, but it's not less. Before I was a teaching pastor, I, I was a worship leader for quite a few years. And in my zeal to, uh, to help people understand that worship was more than just singing, I think often what I inadvertently did was I actually devalued the role of singing in worship. But what we see here in Psalm 100 is that worship is certainly more than singing, but it isn't less which means that when we gather together as the body of Christ, that when we sing, like singing these songs is actually incredibly important because we are serving the Lord and we are also serving one another. As maybe you're sitting next to someone who needs to be reminded of the truths of the gospel that we are singing in song and they don't have the strength to sing it for themselves. Would you be that voice that sings these truths over them and on behalf of them, to remind one another of this great God and what he has done in Christ. You see, singing is a sign of spiritual life. I'm not saying you have to, it says make a joyful noise, right? It doesn't say be great at four-part harmony. Like any of us can make a noise, right? So when we come into this place, I want to encourage you, Anthem Church, to sing yeah, your voice may not be great. It probably isn't, actually. There's probably a reason you're not up here with a mic. You know? But in one collective voice, we can serve the Lord with gladness because of who he is and what he has done. And here's the thing. The reason why we can serve the Lord with gladness is because we know that what we bring is not the basis of our acceptance. Here's what that means. That every week when you gather and sing together, that every time you're standing at the kitchen, at the sink, doing dishes, 
singing to the Lord, and maybe your kids are embarrassed, you know, by your voice. Like every time you lift your voice in praise to the Lord, every time, that, that in, in no circumstance is that an audition. That maybe if I sing good enough, then God will be happy with me. Maybe if I sing loud enough, then God will accept my praise. No, your acceptance before God is not based on the quality of who you are or what you do. Your acceptance before God is based on the quality of who Christ is and what he has done. Not who you are and what you do, but who he is and what he has done. So sing to the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It's he who made us, and we are his. I started playing the guitar when I was 13. I got my first real guitar when I was 16. And between the money that I had saved up and the, the money that my dad like very generously put forward, as a 16-year-old, I walked into Riemann Music in Des Moines, Iowa, on Hubble Avenue, and I picked out a Martin guitar. Now, for you, if you don't play guitar, that doesn't mean anything to you. If you do, you know, like, okay, that's probably a big deal for a 16-year-old. And so in one moment, uh, that guitar became the most valuable thing that I had ever owned in my entire life, right? Like, I drove slower on the way home, okay? It was one of those things. And when I got home, like, I opened up the case, and even just the smell, you know, like, if you're, if you're a guitar player, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you get that acoustic guitar, you get the, you lift it up, you, like, sniff in the sound hole to, like, like, Okay, this is great. And I, I'm, I'm not making this up. I, when I got home, the first song I played on it, I was so infatuated with, with just what it was that I forgot to close my mouth and I like drooled all over the guitar. You know, I was like, oh, oh no. Like, got to clean that up. I was so, because it was mine. Like, I could not believe that this was mine. Fast forward, bringing our daughter home from the hospital. I didn't drool on her, but probably might as well. I mean, you know, like you're that parent, the, the, like my first child bringing her home. We don't even take her out of the car seat, right? We go into our living room, just set her in the middle of the living room and just watch her sleep. And for all of the, like of the pain of childbirth that she brought for all of the, of the medical bills, right? That she brought, like for all of the responsibility that she brought, we so delighted in her. Because she was ours. That's my guitar. And even more, that's my daughter. Did you know that if you are in Christ, that God delights in you? That you have never loved anything but a fraction of the degree to which God loves you. You see, I think one, one barrier for many when they hear that God is a loving father, is that you may go, I never knew my father. Or my father was abusive. Or my father was physically there, but he emotionally wasn't. And you go, if God is a father, I want nothing to do with him. Here's what's true this morning. Is that God is not a reflection of your earthly father. God is the perfection of of your earthly father. 
See, God is everything your father couldn't be or wouldn't be for you. No matter how great your dad was here on earth or no matter how terrible he was, God is the perfection of a father who delights in you, who loves you, who sees you. You see, I think if we're honest, we often think of, uh, sometimes I'll do this with people where I'll say, hey, can you, can you draw for me like the emoji version of, what, of the face you think God makes when he looks at you? You know the face that most often gets drawn? With the exception of one time, every time I have asked someone to do that, the face that they have drawn has been like the meh emoji. Like unimpressed, unsatisfied, can't you do more? Like he's constantly disappointed with your performance. Friends, that could be no further from the truth. Because again, your acceptance before God is not based on who you are or what you have done. That when God looks at you, if you are in Christ, that the face that he has toward you as one who is in Christ, is that he looks at you in the same exact way as he looks at his very own son. With delight and joy. See, this verse isn't just saying, so he made us, it's he who made us and we are his. It's not, that he, it's not like just that he made us in the sense that we exist like that we exist on this earth, but it's saying that he made us his people. That just as God chose the nation of Israel by no merit of their own, by no, like, like it's not as though all the nations put in their resumes and Israel came out on top and so God accepted them as his people. No, God chose Israel, not on the basis of who they were, but, but, of, of who they were, but he chose them because he chose them. He loved them because he loved them simply by his good grace and his good pleasure. And if you are in Christ, he chose you because he chose you. He loves you because he loves you. You are his because he decided that you would be his. Why does God love you? It's because he loves you. You see, Christianity is the only worldview where the fundamental basis of your identity is received rather than achieved. See, everything else, every identity that this world has to offer you is something that you have to achieve. Like you, you, have, you have to signal your allegiance to this identity, to this movement, to this, to this ideology, to this way of thinking. You have, you have to show that you are good enough to be accepted by that group or by those people, not with God. It's the only worldview where your identity is received and not achieved. Colossians 2 says this, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal commands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christian, do you see the great lengths that God has gone to, to make you his people, to bring you into his family. Your debt, your sin, your condemnation, your punishment nailed to his cross. Jesus received your punishment so that you could receive his grace.
And if we are a people who know this, not just like know this with our heads, but actually know this and understand this, then verse 4 makes perfect sense. Look at verse 4. So verse 3, we are his people and the sheep of his, of his pasture, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Do you see the pattern here? Like thanksgiving and praise, thanksgiving and praise. Like you want to know the password to get into the presence of God. You ever played that game with your kids, that password game? Like you want to know the password to get in the presence of God? Thank you. Thank you for what you have done. You see, you're never so bad that God doesn't want you. You're never so bad that God doesn't want you. And you're never so good that you don't need him. When is the last time that as you came before the Lord in prayer, that your one and only agenda was to thank him for who he is and what he has done? Like, not, not with your list of requests or, your, like, your list of physical ailments that you want him to heal. You know, I'm not, and I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm just saying, when was the last time that the pure goal of your time in prayer with the Lord was simply to adore him and thank him for what he has done? Thanksgiving and praise. Thanksgiving and praise. And now verse 5. The climax of this whole thing. See, up to this point, it's been a lot of like, do this, do that. Like, sing, serve, know, give thanks. Like, here's all the things to do. And you have to ask the question, why? Like, why should I do these things? Verse 5. For the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generation. See, church, this is the gale force wind that is meant to stir up our hearts in Psalm 100, like worship toward him, like all of these things that we have seen. And then the the giant crescendo here at the end in verse five, like why do all these things? For the Lord is good. You could say it, for the Lord is better. You see, many of you are all too well acquainted with the fleeting goodness of other people, of pleasures. And you're particularly aware of the fleeting nature of people and pleasure as you get to a point where maybe some of you have watched your wife walk into the arms of another man. where for some of you, your child, who you have sacrificed for, you're not perfect, but you've done your best, looks at you and disowns you as their parent. When your earthly father abandons you, or maybe pregnant, but emotionally gone, that when the fun of Saturday night becomes the regret of Sunday morning, Not so with our Heavenly Father. His goodness is not fleeting. His goodness is not fickle. His goodness is not uncertain. His goodness is not constantly looking over your shoulder to find someone better. No, His goodness is perfect. 
His love is steadfast. That he loves you and delights in you. As Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, I love it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, with a never stopping, never giving up, unfailing, always and forever kind of love. So friends, would we taste and see that the Lord is good? Would we let the vision of his goodness, of his grace, of his mercy in Christ, would we find ways to constantly be reminded of who he is and what he has done? Some of you might be going, like, it's hard for me to see the goodness of God. And I go, how often do you, do you behold him in his word? How often do you seek his face in prayer? How often do you commune with his people to be reminded from another person of his goodness toward you? Taste and see that the Lord is good. And would this love and goodness be the gale force wind that rushes through every aspect of our lives? Because when that happens, our hearts can't help, like a windmill that is functioning properly, can't help but stand and begin to spin. That our mouths can't help but open and resound with songs of praise that can be heard throughout our home, throughout our dorm, throughout our apartment, throughout our workplace, throughout our neighborhood, that people would see us as a people who delight in the Lord for his glory and our good. Would we be that kind of people? Whether you're here in Columbia, Missouri, or whether we're up in Cedar Falls, Iowa, would we praise the Lord? was singing because he is good.